Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I will be speaking with Eva Ilus, Professor of Sociology at Hebrew University in Jerusalem and President at the Belzalel Academy of Arts and Sciences. Her book, Hardcore Romance, Fifty Shades of Grey, Bestsellers in Society, published by the University of Chicago Press, is a topic of this show. Ilus provides us with a feminist sociological analysis of the soft pornographic novel Fifty Shades of Grey and its two sequels and why it became a worldwide bestseller. Beginning as fan fiction, the novel subsequently reached record-breaking sales as an e-book. With the two central characters, a sexual ingenue and a powerful enigmatic anti-hero, the novel is poorly written and formulaic, yet managed to capture the imagination of millions of women. Elus tells us how the novel was the perfect combination of fantasy and self-help delivered to an audience increasingly confused and uncertain in negotiating the heterosexual relationships. With its sadomasochistic sex and images of female submission and male dominance, Fifty Shades of Grey is a gothic romance adapted to modern sexual dilemmas and emotional confusion between men and women. Combining the romantic fantasy and self-help genres, it acts as a catalyst for renegotiating heterosexual relationships. By placing the novel within the history of the commodification of the book, the dynamics of the sexual marketplace, and the sociology of sexuality, Elus locates Fifty Shades of Grey in the contemporary context. The reader of Hardcore Romance will find an intriguing argument for why after feminism and the sexual revolution, dominance and submission, resistance and surrender remain as enigmas of modern relationships. Here's my conversation with Eva Elus. Let me introduce you to our author, Eva Elus. Eva, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you, Lillian, for having me. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with my audience. Your book, uh, On Fifty Shades of Grey, um, has illuminated something I think that's very puzzling to many people. Uh, as feminism and women have made, made incredible advances in their life, there are still some areas that are uncharted territory, and I think you're going into uncharted territory. And your, your critique, your analysis of Fifty Shades of Grey is very illuminating. But before we get into your book and what you have to say about it, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, your background, where you came from, and your, your scholarship. I was born in Morocco. Uh, I'm a Sephardi Jew. Uh, we immigrated to France uh, in, when I was 10. So I was raised in France, really. Uh, my education is French. My first language is French. I did my doctorate in the United States at the University of Pennsylvania. And then I immigrated from the United States to Israel, and I've been teaching for the last 15 years at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I am a sociologist of culture and of emotions, um, and I'm the mother of three boys. So how did you come to write uh, Hardcore Romance? 
Actually, I would say this is the only book of mine that is the result of a solicitation. Um, I was solicited by the German weekly Der Spiegel to write an article on the book uh, very shortly after it came out and after it became a worldwide phenomenon. Um, I wrote an article. I think that article got a very high number of entries for the same, I don't remember if it was the same month or the same year, but it, were, it was enough entries that my publisher, Zokamp, uh, thought that I could and should write a short book about, uh, about it. And the book intrigued me, uh, so I was interested enough to do it. This is how I came to write it. Now, Fifty Shades of Grey, and as you indicate in your book, and we, we know that it, it was a worldwide phenomenon. It's been translated into how many languages do you know? Oh, I think uh, the last I counted, I think it was 29 languages, but I could be wrong. I, I, I would have to recheck the very latest uh, number of translations. That's fine. Uh, you put the book, you start by putting the book in the context of the history of uh, the bestseller. So can you talk a little bit about what makes a bestseller in the first place? Why do we, you know, why do we have certain books that just sort of take off and others do not to this degree? Well, you know, I think... To a great extent, if we knew in advance, um, I think, you know, many people would be constantly producing bestsellers. There is a certain amount of uncertainty uh, before you write or you make a movie. As anybody in the industry will tell you, there is a certain amount of uncertainty, even though I am told there are now algorithms to make sure that a movie or a book have a certain number of uh, sales figures. So what we do really, we being sociologists of culture, people who try to understand these phenomena, what we try to do really is think retrospectively. Once something is already a bestseller, we try to figure out the reasons why. So I just want to make sure that you understand it's not exactly the same thing mm -hmm. to predict it and to uh, analyze it retroactively and retrospectively. Um, I would say that, um, you know, I'm going to try to remain simple. I would say a bestseller has to um, resonate with something that poses often a problem, with um, a structure of sensibility. The sociologist, the British sociologist and literary theorist Raymond Williams called it a structure of feeling. Uh, which is um, how in different areas of social life, how people come to feel or understand something in a new way. There are structures of feeling. And so I would say a bestseller is something that resonates with new phenomenon in culture, with something that is new, that is widespread, and for which you often do not even have really a language for And um, cultures are often something that poses a problem to people because you have different or conflicting imperatives. You have to be, let's say, uh, loving and caring on the one hand, and you have to be free and autonomous on the other hand. The same culture prescribes both to you. So if the same culture prescribes both, it is often psychologically lived as a conflict or a contradiction. And I would say that there are some creations... It doesn't matter here if they are bestsellers, popular, or high culture. It doesn't 
some creations, some uh, creations resonate with that sense of puzzlement, um, perplexity or perplexity that some people have with their own culture. And I would say that a bestseller is often one that addresses in a kind of simple language with simple narratives those areas of social life that are puzzling, that are difficult for people, but which address them by offering a simple solution, a kind of recipe or answer for it. And uh, definitely uh, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey was able to do that. Now, Fifty Shades of Grey uh, is just a phenomenal book in terms of its popularity. It started off as fan fiction. Uh, can you give us a little background about fan fiction and just mass market of books? Because that's yeah. part of it. It's power. It's, it's there's a power in the market in the distribution of marketing of books that um, really has pushed this forward. Can you give us a little background on that? Well, fan fiction is um, fiction that is written that was written for the internet and in which the um, readers uh, have a great deal of input. So, in a way, there is a kind of structural. Uh, device to, um, uh, it's a, it's a, I would say, a structural marketing device um, in fan fiction in which you write in a way that is congruent or resonant with your reader's expectations. Um, and uh, E.L. James, uh, as we know, wrote this novel. Uh, first, it was Master of the Universe. She wrote it as a... Um, uh, novel in which her readers um, intervened and wrote it for her. In a way, it's a little bit, I would say, uh, to the Internet, what the Oprah talk show was for television, which was really a genre in which the viewer had a great deal of input. The viewer, the audience that was uh, invited, and also the viewer as the guest that she invited in her t- TV show, and the viewer was the one who determined often, often, you know, Oprah determined the content of her show by soliciting the viewers, by taking their stories, by integrating her, their stories in her show. So um, we have, we see increasingly this blurring of uh, many media with the world of the readers or viewers, in which the readers and viewers own uh uh, questions and own ways of solving problems is integrated into the product that you are creating. So there is a co-creation of the show or the novel between the author and the reader. So it's no longer the the books, uh, these kinds of books are no longer just simply a product that a consumer consumes, but the consumer, and you point this out in your book, is actually uh, part of the creation creative process. We call that, sociologists of culture and consumption have made a, have forged a name for it. It's called prosumer. Prosumer and prosumption, which is the fact that um, the uh, consumer himself co-creates the product. You know, it would be the IKEA kit that you buy and which you put together. Or it would be the fact that in a McDonald's, you are the one who puts back the tray and throws out the trash. 
um, this is, um, um, I mean, this is a phenomenon that we can find in the realm of culture as well as in the realm of artifacts. Very interesting. Now, the author of Fifty Shades of Grey, I want to say, is E.L. James, which is interesting because, again, if you just see that book, you don't know if it's a woman or a man who's writing the book. Um, and there may be a reason why it's just E.L. James. Uh, what I wanted to ask is, what is what does Fifty Shades of Grey offer? In your argument, what does it offer women who are reading this book? And it's mostly women who are reading the book. Is that correct? Well, it's, uh, it was interesting because it, these were women who passed the book to men. I think one of the reasons why it uh, it was a uh, such an interesting book it was because romance reading you're absolutely right is a very women's reading uh, and women usually you know the um, uh, literary scholar Jane Radway has un- uh, documented how women read romances and they read them really in a way to reaffirm their autonomy from the world of men and to figure out what the world of romance is. But they do it as women, for women, with women. This book is a book that was passed from women to men. And it was passed, I would say, almost as a self-help book, which is to say, now you will understand what the world, what women fantasize about. So it, I would say it's a kind of do, uh, it, it was a kind of self-help book where the purpose is to help the men to understand what women fantasize about. So, you know, usually guidebooks are about, you know, clear do's and don'ts. Uh, it is very difficult to spell out a fantasy, what a fantasy is. And I think the ways in which many women interpreted this book is one, that it articulated their fantasy, and two, that they thought it would help men figure out what their fantasy is. So uh, they wanted to educate the men in their own fantasy world. Now, if you ask me what the fantasy is, right, Let's, uh, if I had to answer the question of what is the woman, woman's fantasy there, I would say we still live, by and large, in a world in which we have uh, at one and the same time very strong feminist norms which simply resonate with uh, human rights norms, namely all human beings are equal, for equal work, equal pay. We do not discriminate um, against uh, anyone because of his gender, sexual orientation or race. So that is something that whether women call themselves feminist or not, that is hardly to be put into question. On the other hand, we have still in the realm of love and domesticity, uh, still persisting very powerful pre-modern, pre-feminist fantasies and mythologies of what love is. Of what love is and what relationships between men and women are. And the superposition of these two, I would say, um, of these two cultural worlds, of these two uh, set of ideas, creates often a conflict because the pre-modern world of love is one in which um, men and women have very clear roles, where the men courts the women in a way with a sequence 
and with rituals that are known, in which there is a great deal, I would say, of emotional clarity, in which men are able and willing to commit to women very quickly, um, in which women quite often control and dominate the courtship process. That's the pre-modern world. In the modern world, um, you have much less emotional clarity. There is much more ambivalence. There is much uh, more confusion about the roles. And um, so you have this uh, a very strong norm of equality, which brings with it a much greater emotional and role confusion. And I would say the fantasy that the book responds to is to um, be able to reconcile magically the a world in which uh, women is uh, the perfect equal of a man, no matter how powerful that man is, no matter how seductive he is, she is nobody, and he is extraordinarily powerful, handsome, sexy, attractive, but she stands her ground, and she manages to be not only his equal, but she manages, in fact, to subdue him, to subdue his uh, feelings for her. So that's what, so the, the dream of equality is achieved there. And, and it's not only equality, it's equality with a vengeance, because only through her spirit um, she manages to overcome the profound socioeconomic inequality that exists between them and the inequality between men and women that exists between them. On the other hand, when they have their sexual relationship, that sexual relationship is able to um, um, uh, respond to the old fantasy of the men uh, dominating the women, but he does that in a way that feels entirely pleasurable and authorized in the era of feminism. Okay, so the sadomasochism, you know, everybody's been um, focusing on the bondage in the book, you know, the apparent abuse of women in the book, but what you're saying that's really beside the point, that that's really not the main thing that's going on there, that the fantasy is more than just women want to be abused in some way. Um, there's a whole other thing going on in the book. I think that if there is abuse of the women, it is constantly contradicted by the fact that she uh, opposes his attempts to uh, control her. So, so the, the so there is there a, a clear. There are, I think, two equal fantasies. One is to be subdued, that the women would be subdued in a way that feels pleasurable. And this has been a women's theme, at least since the 18th century, where the novel represents a woman um, um, being the object of the assaults and violence of men. But then she has to figure out why this man is violent to her. And then she finds out that the reason why he's violent is because he, he, he is actually deeply, secretly in love with her. So that, so the deep fantasy that is answered there is to say the pain that men are inflicting me, the, the, that the pain that the man is inflicting upon me actually hides his great love and commitment to me. So that's one thread. And the other thread is to say, as I said before, that she can achieve, she can subdue him, in fact, uh, because you cannot ignore that dimension of the book, which is to say 
that he is in fact um, um, he he is in fact his her, her slave, her emotional slave, and that fulfills another fantasy of women, which is to uh, um, to be able to uh, overcome the um, uh, their own, by the way, their own and the man's desire for autonomy. So there's a there's a theme there that the, that men are in a way uh, emotionally incompetent, emotionally um, need to be tutored by women. Women have to in a way teach men how to be how to feel and express love appropriately. I don't think you find it in this book. No, it's, okay. it's more her. It's uh, it, it, she is the one who is taught. But what she's taught is her own pleasure, her own sexual pleasure, which is a form of love. But the, the, and the reason why it is acceptable in the world of women's romance in that novel is that because sexuality is actually entirely um, superseded under the theme of love. Uh, so she and it, it's so the the book functions also as a sexual manual, in fact. Only that sexual manuals are written often by sexologists, doctors, and use very technical language um, to say what you should do or shouldn't do. And here, the manual functions much better because it, so to speak, illustrates what you should do. Uh, it, it gives it, it, it makes the reader see in action how it looks like. And um, it does this by teaching a practice that is uh, um, by mainstreaming uh, practice that is, so to speak, marginal. That's why the sadomasochistic relationship in this book is, according to me, a vanilla sadomasochistic relationship because in sadomasochism, if you read the story of O, for example, the point of the uh, masochist is really to um, lose a sense of self, to... Um, to lose, to to become abject, to really become abject, and to become so defiled that the um, the masochist loses any sense of subjectivity, of autonomy, of sovereignty. But here, the relationship makes her much more sovereign, much more in uh, in touch. We would say with her own pleasure. And so, in a way, it is that that is precisely the fantasy, which is to say, by subduing myself, I manage to be even more autonomous and even more sovereign. So, um, this is consistent with this view that collective fantasies are those that present a contradiction and immediately resolve it, where the resolution here is, I am both inferior and equal. I'm both inferior and equal. Now, we've been talking here on a very sort of sub- subjectivity, sort of psychological level, but you're, you, you also tap the sociology of sexuality, and you talk about sexuality is more than just two people having sex, that there is all kinds of meaning and all kinds of enactment that's happening in, in sexual relationships that are big, bigger than the two people. Can you unpack that a little bit and talk to me about how, how sex between two people really is representative of a larger cultural dynamic that's going on? Oh, um, well, first of all, with whom, very simply, 
with whom are you authorized to have sex or commanded to have sex? That is something that is sub- subject to uh, variations, to wide variations. In the um, in ancient Greece, um, a man, a married man, uh, does not uh, uh, see it as in any way a problem to um, have a wife, children, a household, and to have relationship with a with a man who is also uh, often younger. So the relationship between uh, and this man and another man also, what is interesting is that it does not force anyone to define themselves as anything. We would today, under our heavily psychiatric discourse and views, we would feel compelled to ask from people to define themselves. You're either heterosexual or homosexual. And if you're n- 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 not this and not that, then we have the third category of, okay, bisexual. But in those times, you did not need to. So it means that, first of all, the object of your um, uh, sexual relationship uh, varies. Christianity is going to banish very much homosexual relationships. Then how do you perceive yourself? Who is the one who legislates over sexuality is something also that varies. It changes from Christianity, for example, to psychologists or psychiatrists. Something happens to sexuality once sexuality um, is regulated by these different uh, bodies. So in that sense, um, uh, um, uh, so sexu- the object of our sexual desire is fairly uh, well-scripted, I would say. Then, when you have sex, when you have sex itself, what is thought of as a appropriate sex or not? Uh, for a man, for a Roman, to be sodomized was a supreme humiliation. You could only be the one who enters. You could not be entered because slaves are the ones who are entered, who are sodomized. So the act of sexuality itself reflects um, uh, social roles. It would be, I would say, the same until the sexual uh, liberation happened. Um, There were, for sure, many sexual positions that were deemed highly inappropriate for well-bred men and women. So you had to um, have... Um, a very important dis- public discussion and change about sexuality and about what was uh, allowed or not in the sexual relationship itself for position for people to feel uh, allowed to do whatever they wanted. You needed to have uh, individualism uh, and you needed also psychology, psychoanalysis to say that um, uh, sexuality was a good thing. It was, in fact, something that um, uh, needed to be appropriately cultivated in human beings for them to flourish. So that is also a very big change, whether you view the self or the essential core of the self as residing, for example, in sin and virtue, or whether as psychoanalysis would say, you view the essence of the self as residing in the capacity of the person to have good, fulfilling relation, uh, sexual relationships, sexuality, 
Um, so that also changes the place of sexuality. So not only the content of sexuality, but the place that sexuality plays in an overall conception of what is a good self, or what is a good person. Okay, let me ask you another question. You talk about um, that there's all kinds of uh, problems in modern relationships that are contradictions, and one of the problems that you talk about is the problem of recognition. What do you mean by the problem of recognition? And I think you go into Hegel there a little bit. And um, how does this look? What does this look like in a sexual relationship? Well, uh, recognition is uh, the need I have and that everybody has to have my uh, social partner, my boss, my colleague, my lover, my husband, my friend, to validate whatever definition of myself I give to myself, to back up that definition. The process of, of recognition is thought to be an essential process uh, uh, to uh, good in social interactions. It's uh, Hegel, of course, talked about it, but it is Axel Honneth, the German philosopher, who really uh, made brought this to the forefront of an understanding of uh, the social na- nature of subjectivity. In, and in other words, when the child grows up, when a baby grows up, uh, there are lots of studies that shows that an adequate uh, baby, a, a baby that is adequately brought up, if you want, is one um, whose environment mirrors and responds to who they are in a very basic way. Simply the fact that the mother is going or the, or the father is going to smile or responds, take turns in conversations. This is a process of mirroring that is also a process of recognition. I recognize your presence and I validate who you are. But that, yeah, yeah but the, uh, I wanted to ask you about that. But as you're saying, I need to be, uh, the individual is recognized by, uh, by others of what the individual has, has identified themselves as. But the question is that self was already constructed by a social process, so it's a, sort of a, a, a circular thing, right? Uh, your, your, self, your sense of self and who you are and what defines you is constructed by your surroundings, your society, your relationships, and then in turn you're asking that culture around you, that, that group around you, to recognize what they have constructed. Well, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. I think, uh, well, I think, I mean, if you believe that theory, not all groups um, um, enjoy the same degree of recognition. So recognition would be also attached to this notion of visibility. When, uh, let's say, a waiter brings you your food on the table, you don't really properly look often at the waiter. You simply look at the dish that was put on your table. That is a process in which you don't really recognize or acknowledge the waiter. To properly recognize the the waiter would be to look at them, to take a full account of the fact they brought your food on your table and thank them for doing that. It's not always done. It's the same with, think about um, uh, the immigrant workers who build houses, who build, uh, you know, construction workers 
all of Europe who build houses, uh, you know, Turks brought in Germany in the 1960s, 70s. These people, in a way, are almost becoming visible in society. They do things for others, but they're not fully acknowledged until they demand, these groups, demand for recognition, which is the uh, ways in which some philosophers have understood the struggle of many minority groups in modern societies. They have understood their claims as being uh, not only uh, claims for more equality, but also what was qualitatively new was also a claim for recognition. Recognize us as who we are, as uh, Muslims with a veil, as uh, uh, um, as uh, women who care for their children and whose work has been made invisible. In many ways, the struggle of feminism has been a struggle for the recognition of the invisible work that women were doing at in the home. In, so the struggle for recognition is often a, wor- a, a, a struggle to move from invisibility to visibility and to view that person um, from an inferior to view them as a complete equal. So in this in this book, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, the way that function is, women are are basically making a demand to be recognized for their their own sexual agency, desire, and right in the eyes of men. Is this what's happening there? I think I was saying what I was saying was that the um, Contract. If you remember, in Volume 1, Christian Grey asks Anna to sign a contract in which she is going to give away all her rights, in fact. And she is going to be his slave. Okay? Now, we know that she is in love with him. And yet, uh, she is not going to sign the contract, which is to say that she is going to forego the possibility of having a relationship with him. This is a pivotal moment in the novel because this is the moment where he is forced, so to speak, to recognize her. This is to use the language of Hegel. What he tried to do is literally, as in Hegel's uh, very famous dialectics of masters and the slave, he tries to make her his slave, his sexual slave. So, If you take that as a kind of generalized metaphor for for very sexual masculinity, which uh, takes pride in sexual performance and serial sexuality in having many sexual partners, um, the men are, um, in fact, using women for their own sexual purposes. But what they really want, as Hegel said, what the master really wants, he wants really someone equal to him, someone who would be able to uh, uh, oppose him because it's worse to dominate only someone who is equal to you. So that's, in a way, the paradox of domination and recognition. Because to dominate someone who is really your inferior doesn't count as domination. What you want to be recognized yourself as the master is someone who is your equal. So the fact that Anna actually um, uh, um, for, uh, refuses to sign the contract makes her into his equal. 
And that is what I call the recognition uh, um, that happens, the moment of recognition that happens in the narrative, because at this moment she affirms, at the moment she affirms that she's really free from the bondage of love, from her own bondage of love, from her own desire to be loved. At the moment she affirms that, he is able to fall in love with her. So this means that he falls in love only with a free woman. He, he cannot fall in love with anyone. So before he meets her, he is um, himself the prisoner of his compulsive masculinity. And his compulsive masculinity is to subdue the woman, to make her into his slave. Once she affirms her freedom, then he is able to recognize her as his equal. And then he falls in love with her. Uh, going to a different direction here, you talk about feminism uh, as a cultural code in culture that uh, has been sort of accepted, but there's it's like it's incom- but there's an incompletion to feminism because underneath this accepted code of equality, there's a great deal of inequality. And then you say that equality, one of the reasons is equality is not, you said, is not sexy. And I wanted to, I wanted to know why equality is not se- sexy. And does equality in that ter- question really, or that statement mean that uh, the same? Is it possible to be different but still be equal? Well, first of all, I, I just want to make sure that it's clear. I personally find equality the most uh, sexy. I, ne- I could never find somebody either superior or inferior to me sexy. Uh, so right. uh, let me just be clear about that. Uh, but I think that equality has been constructed as unsexy. Okay, it has been constructed underneath this uh, feminist code. There is this uh, feeling that equality is ultimately not very sexy. Yes. Okay. So the equality, because equality, I can say something about it, because we really understand that that's what I meant um, uh, when we started this interview um, by old structure. We have these old mythologies, because in the old mythology, for example, the man is very protective. And what makes masculinity sexy is the capacity of the man to be very protective to the women, towards the women. And uh, if the man is uh, fragile, vulnerable, and not in charge anymore of the courtship process and of the emotional protectiveness, then how are men sexy? That is a cultural question that is being posed. What makes a man sexy? Because that's also assuming that there's only one one kind of protection, which is, you know, this uh, physical uh, strength, bodily protection. But in, I think history has shown that women uh, have protect men all the time from all kinds of things. Oh, absolutely. So, so this is really, um, um, I would say, um, as I said, this is a, a kind of, this has, I mean, feminism has profoundly, I mean, it's a cliche to say, has profoundly put into question uh, even the very basis of desire, of sexual desire, what it is that we are supposed to be desiring and how does sexual desire function. 
If you want, there was a kind of mechanical way to desire, uh, for men to desire women and for women to desire men. And what feminism has revolutionized is that mechanic of desire. And that, and in the same way that it is more complicated and of course morally more worthy to govern democratic societies in which everybody is equal, it's more complicated than to govern uh, very hierarchical societies in which everyone knows his place. It's also more complicated to manage relationships that are more equal. Now, the fact that it's more complicated um, means that you don't have a prescribed recipe, script, formulas, rules to do that. That's what feminism has been brilliant at doing. But it means that it leaves men and women struggling uh, with the question of how to reconstruct uh, the rules and recipes from which to activate their own desire. Right, because equality, if equality is not sexy, isn't the assumption there that equal, equal means the same? And how do we have difference, still be equal, have difference? Because it's, it, is that, is there something there? Uh, I think that the, I think if you want that the, the, the cultural problem is, is that we have, we think of heterosexuality as being a relationship between two people who are fundamentally different. But you are right. Equality entails a great deal of sameness. It has entailed for women to be much more aware of the male, you know, what we would call in very simple language, the male part of their selves, and for men to be much more um, uh, uh, aware and uh, um, willing to express the m- many more female parts of their selves. So really gender identity is a continuum. These are not very discrete categories. Men and women contain within themselves very many attributes of the opposite sex. And equality um, entails recognizing that there is much more in common between men and women than than difference. I don't think, I mean, the French feminism, the French brand of feminism has tried to play that card of equality and difference. Frankly, I don't believe it. I think in that sense that, I mean, to speak really in very broad categories because American feminism is very complex and very multiple, um, I, I think that these feminists are not convincing uh, because I do think that the claim to equality is fundamentally a claim to sameness and that um, human rights in general are based on the basic assumption that all human beings have some core that is fundamentally the same, only that when you bring that basic understanding to the realm of sexual and romantic relationships, it um, it finds uh, an obstacle in that very long tradition um, of sexual desire that is precisely based on difference. So really the question here is almost, I would say, a civilizational question, which is how do you restart, refuel the machine of sexual desire when uh, the object of, sexu- of, your sec- of your sexual desire is not different but the same in that respect. I think that homosexuals are actually leading the way because, 
And actually, what we heterosexuals are doing is, in fact, moving, I think, even within conventional heterosexuality, we're moving more and more towards a homosexual world in which men and women are more and more defined as the same. So if you, if you have a heterosexual couple, let's say, that is perfectly equal, I would not mind calling that couple a homosexual couple because they are in fact, um, because they are in fact the same. Do you see what I mean? Yes, I understand what you're saying. But, uh, there's also an element in there, I think, of that we, that part of, uh, relationships is, em- is embracing the other. Because if you embrace the same, it's really you're looking for someone just like you. Yes. Okay. There's that danger. Right. <laughs> There's that danger of, of, of you really uh, p- uh, choosing someone who is really your replica, and you're not really moving outside yourself by embracing someone that is other. Um, yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, there's a, there's a lot here. We've, we've, we've gone through a lot of stuff. I know there's a lot here, but the main po- I think the main point I want to get to here is with all this that you've talked about, which is all very fascinating, is how Fifty Shades of Grey really kind of uh, d- attempts to address multiple layers of of what's going on in redefining relationships in the modern world between men and women. Well, that's always, you know, the relationship between the critique and the uh, object that the critique is looking at. So, if you, you know, when a, a critique is able to produce a massive book on a canvas, about a, can- a monochromatic canvas that has only a single color or two colors with nothing on it, and you're able to produce a massive amount of... Uh, <laughs> Of, uh, of thoughts and reflection on that very abstract uh, object, many people say, well, what is the part of the artistic object of the painting and what is the part of the, that the critique imagined or projected on that canvas? So you could say maybe it's the same here. Perhaps a book that does not have much in it, and it's very badly written, by the way, in my opinion, uh, because there are many repetitions uh, in the book, uh, but it is so. So it is possible that I am projecting on this book my own understanding of what is happening in uh, romantic relationship. But but I think it works. I mean, it, it, whether the book has or does not have all these layers, the layers I am suggesting are there. Function. I mean, there is a lot of textual evidence, empirical evidence to sustain my interpretation. Okay. So you talk about that we have, there's a need to overcome the aporia of desire. What is, so what is the fundamental problem that, that uh, modern society needs to um, overcome and that this book in some way facilitates or helps at least identify the problem? What is the fundamental problem? Well, I think for one thing, uh, romantic relationships today feel complicated and difficult. I don't think I would surprise anyone by saying something as simple as that. 
heterosexual relationships in particular strike me as being quite difficult to uh, achieve in a way that is satisfactory and that is fulfilling. Uh, it could be that people manage to achieve them, but it's often only uh, after many relationships, after divorces, uh, etc. So relationships feel painful and... Um, and they are painful because they try to combine um, many conflicting imperatives. You have to be autonomous. You have to claim your freedom at any time. Otherwise, you are not a valid human being. And yet, you are supposed to um, commit yourself entirely, wholeheartedly, in a very complex way. Uh, to, you, are, you are supposed to commit yourself to another person. And to do that in a way that alienates, in many ways, all your being. Because you're supposed to uh, share all your secrets and your beings and your interiority with another being. Otherwise, today does not qualify as true intimacy. And the, this, is the, this is an issue I think that is really important, that we are actually have, have made the romantic relationship carry so much of meaning and intimacy and everything, our hopes and desires are all loaded up on this one relationship that it makes it virtually impossible, impossible really to succeed at it because there's just no way that uh, two people can fulfill each other in every multiple, you know, intellectually, emotionally, physically, in every way. So how how is, how do you get there? Because I, you know, marriage before, as I understand it, it was more of uh, each person had their responsibilities and women particularly were not looking to their husbands to fulfill all their intimate, all their intimacies and all their emotional needs. They often turned to other women for that. There's a French philosopher, um, intellectual, called Pascal Bruckner, who has called recently for, what, for uh, a return to the marriage of reason. Precisely for that reason. And he says something like that. He says, we should really separate well two issues. One, is the necessity or not necessity, the desire to have a family. Uh, and there he says, you know, the bourgeois model offered uh, is a good model. You marry someone uh, for um, their, I don't know, social status. You have children with them. You pull resources together, economic resources together, and you have this social existence. You have dinners together, and you go out together, and you have grandchildren together. That's one thing he says. But it's obvious, he says, that uh, there are many sexual desires and fantasies, emotional fantasies that cannot be fulfilled in that framework. Therefore, he says, let's, have, let's return to the marriage of reason in which we choose in a very reasonable way, very reasoned and reasonable way, who we are going to have our children with. And let's um, have affairs outside marriage without, however, hurting anyone's feelings, uh, uh, etc. Let's do it in a kind of elegant and tactful way. I'm not saying this is the uh, uh, solution I advocate. In fact, I... Um, uh, myself in a public exchange we had in France, uh, I responded to that model and opposed it. Uh, but I think this is 
um, it's interesting because that model existed for men uh, in the past, and I think today more men and women are adopting it with a recognition that indeed they cannot have all their fantasies fulfilled in the framework of marriage. So it means either we come up with a model like Pascal Bruckner is offering us, or we declare the um, model of marriage bankrupt, I mean the modern model of marriage, the, the one that aspires to reconcile domesticity, uh, raising children, romantic love, and an, an eternally exciting sexual relation, that specific model, we can declare it bankrupt and then decide to maybe separate having children on the one hand and having great loves on the other hand. What I think is clear is that it is difficult. It is difficult, if not often impossible, to indeed um, reconcile domesticity, resource pooling, uh, child rearing with um, uh, an uh, intense uh, sexual and romantic relations. And for the few who are going to feel that this is not true about them, that they've been married and still have a great sexual and romantic relations, I will say, great, you're very lucky, but most people don't get there. Okay. So... Do you, do you see, are you doing any further studies on popular fiction like this? Uh, what is your next step in your work? I am uh, working on the question of what I call unloving, what makes people stop loving each other. Okay, and, yeah, and, and then the question, of course, I'm going to ask is, what is love anyway? <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Um, what 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 is what instigates it? What is it? And then you know how does it get dissolved? And uh, let me ask you. Uh, so that's what you're working on now is the book on unloving because you've written a book before and it was Love Hurts. Is that right? Is that the book you wrote? Yeah, Why Love Hurts. Why Love Hurts. Okay. Um, so that 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 inform it, it seems like there's a connection between that previous work. And your work on Fifty Shades of Grey, and also what you're doing next. So there seems uh, there's a theme there that you're exploring and excavating for us. Um, absolutely, yeah. But I think the the real theme that I am excavating uh, is to say to people that their misery, their agony, their romantic pain, their sexual frustration is not only their own, it's, it's not only the result of faulty psyches or problematic childhoods, it's also the result of what I call the structure of modernity or the institutions of modernity. So that's where sociology comes to the rescue of psychology. Uh, we have, I think, too much psychologized our romantic and sexual problems. When I say psychologized, I mean privatized. We have viewed them as the problem only of individuals and of their problematic psyches. And the thing that I really want to say is no. Uh, we, um, some of us might be better equipped than others, but most of us are simply struggling with social conditions they have not chosen and um, which are objectively difficult and they are difficult for everyone. What, what do you think is the future of 
of romantic love or long-term relationships, uh, sexual romantic relationships in a culture that has basically dissolved the the community, that now we are all sort of individual out there, not connected to any home, not any group of people that we truly identify with because we're constantly reinventing ourselves and remaking ourselves. And I'm wondering if the community in prior generations provided a sense of connectedness and fulfillment, emotional and spiritual, that satisfied people at a certain level so that they didn't always have to be looking for, you know, the next excitement in romance. You know, I wouldn't want to romanticize right. those communities. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget that what the, the, these communities uh, uh, oppressed women uh, in remarkable ways. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, and did not recognize basic aspiration of individuals to their own self-definition and self-realization. So I, you know, I would I would not want to romanticize. Uh, communities, because I think communities are quite often um, uh, oppressive. And when people mean community, in fact, what they mean, they mean something that has all the feelings of belonging and membership without its problems, right. the advantages of an individualist uh, culture, which, of course, is ever hardly the case. Usually, you know, you have either one or the other. Um, I would say also that, but there is something, of course, to what you say, and probably because of that, we demand from the uh, romantic relationship to do the work that communities were doing before, which is, among other things, to give a sense of security, of ontological security. That is a great sense of security about who we are and where we go. Um, and that is, and possibly very few people and very few relationships can actually provide that sense of perfect ontological security. So that's where I think that really the lack of community is, um, is a problem. It's because we do not give up on that need for ontological security. And I think that ultimately individual bonds are less able to do what larger uh, uh, social holes are able to do, which is to embed an individual into um, a higher set of meanings. So basically we're between the devil and the deep blue sea because we've got, on one hand, uh, individualism, modern individualism and subjectivity has created all kinds of problems, but uh, the old notions of community were also not... uh, Good. So it, we're kind of bet- constantly, you know, negotiating. How do ha- how do we have community, but how do we remain individuals, and building that into something different that can incorporate both the communal aspects and the individual aspects of what we want into one thing. That's that's the challenge. Yeah, I mean, to go back to our topic, I think that um, it is possible that we're moving to a model where more and more women will decide to have children on their own with a community of friends and with a community of people like them who, who are raising children together. I mean, I see that happening more and more in Europe. 
of uh, people having children uh, through various uh, technologies of reproduction or with other people who they do not live with or do not share uh, their uh, daily life with and raising their child with a community of friends. Uh, that is a viable model if it is done well and with uh, a great deal of wisdom. I think that is a viable model to substitute for the difficulties of bringing up children in uh, romantic relationships. Well, thank you, Eva. You, you're, you've been generous with your time. And uh, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. I welcome your comments. Drop me a note at newbooks.gender at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. Thank you.